are on. Namaste and good evening to all of you. I'm glad to be with all of you again for a satsang after weeks and weeks of workshops here where I was not able to do the satsang. And um, tonight, this day, we are uh, together with a few events coming up because in the school there is coming up the very important metaphysical workshop which uh, some of our advanced teachers in the past used to say, if you want to do one other thing besides the Agama course, then that one must be the metaphysical workshop. Because in our yoga courses, we focus very much on the techniques. People come to learn yoga, to do yoga, to practice yoga, and we teach the techniques and uh, therefore all attention is focused on uh, not having errors in the practice. But that doesn't give us time to discuss some of the motivations, some of the background, some of the fundamental things of yoga. And so we sometimes find out that some people have practiced yoga for six months. Of course, technically they would understand about the chakras, energizing the chakras and everything which comes with it, but without having a sort of a philosophical understanding like, why do I love yoga? Why do I do yoga? What does, it, what, what does it fulfill inside me unless I do it just for fitness or for some effects of healing, which are very direct, very straightforward, easy to understand. And that's why thinking about the fact that soon we will have a metaphysical workshop <clears throat> and people may want to understand the importance of this because the name is a bit difficult, maybe even a little bit pompous, that I'm doing the metaphysical world. What the heck does it mean? Some people can't even translate the word metaphysical or they think it might mean something slightly different. And also, um, I actually have decided together with many of the questions that I uh, received from people that this autumn, after we go through the summer season here in Thailand, in this autumn, in September, October most probably, I will start actually uh, commenting another one of the fundamental texts of yoga. I did already in the previous 20 years a commentary on the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali seen from a tantric yoga standpoint, like seen from the standpoint of yoga with chakras and resonance. And um, then I have done, not very long time ago, some five years ago, a commentary on the Geranda Samhita, which is one of the three very fundamental texts of Hatha Yoga, Kundalini Yoga, the yoga which we practice here on a daily basis in Agama. And it has been my decision at that time that whenever I will have the time, you know, I commented in my history, I commented on Gospels from the Bible, I commented on the Bhagavad Gita, which Mahatma Gandhi called the Bible of the Hindus. Um, I commented just the first six chapters, which are a unit by themselves. They represent a certain section of the Bhagavad Gita. And I had taken the decision that if time will allow it, and if grace will allow it, 
I will comment on the other two fundamental texts of Hatha Yoga, because when you come to Agama and you do yoga, and we teach you how to energize your chakras, how to purify your system, how to control your mind, how to focus, how to deal with emotions, how to sublime, and how to do 20 other things which are of super importance in the daily life and in the spiritual life, uh, that's what you do first. We do it with the body. The body is a wonderful instrument if you know how to use it. And if you know how to use the body and the yogis definitely found out that secret, then with the body you can perform amazing feats. Now everybody who has done Buddhiana Banda for six months knows that as much as you can say that the body is not important or something, when you are in a certain state of mind, if you stand up and do a hundred Buddhiana Bandhas, it will knock out everything inside you and whatever thing, bad, sick, weak, whatever, just do a hundred with the Anabandas and then tell me if I was right or wrong about this. And thus, uh, this working with the body which we do here is very fundamental. It's very often misunderstood. Today, 95% of the people who do yoga in this world, they do it for fitness purposes for stretching and gymnastics and calisthenics, but uh, the true yoga has been conceived with other purposes in mind, with other goals in mind, and that's why in this tradition of using the body, how to use the body, how does the body associate with the energies and with the chakras and with the state of mind and with everything in our structure, then there exists three fundamental texts. One of them written somewhere early in the 7th century, in the beginning of the epoch of Tantric Yoga in India. One of them written in about the 14th century, when the Tantric Yoga and most of the Yogas of India took a nosedive because of the political circumstances of the time. And finally, one in the end of the 17th, 18th century actually, uh, the Geranda Samhita, which is the last, the one which is part of the modern epoch of yoga, and this one I have commented already. So it is my uh, intention also to move to the second in line, to go to an older one, the famous Shiva Samhita, the radical Shiva Samhita, which is a product around the 14th, 15th century. And... Um, because I want to do this and I want people to understand what do we refer to. And because the metaphysical workshop is coming and for many people this workshop will give a clarity on things in yoga which they never thought they would know or understand. I received a question from students who are asking me to tell a little bit about the texts of yoga, the history of yoga, the lineages of yoga. And in the beginning I got a bit confused because I said, well, it seems I have spoken about this. And the truth is that we do have such a lecture in our teacher training program because when we are uh, creating yoga teachers, we want those yoga teachers to know what they are teaching, to know what is this yoga uh, as a history, as a 
spiritual phenomenon on planet Earth. But then I realized, of course, that this, uh, if you haven't done the teacher training program uh, in Agama, then you have not heard such a lecture. And people who are listening to the satsangs, which are people who, you know, these uh, videos are even going out on the internet and they are available to all, they don't know about these things. But then I also got confused because I said, come on, today you take a good book, a scholarly, a PhD on yoga of some sort, or you go on Wikipedia or some place like this, you can find some information about history of yoga, literature of yoga, and things like that. You don't need Swami Vivekananda Sarasvati to talk about that. Then I thought, okay, maybe I can do it in a different way, insisting on the things which uh, only Swami Vivekananda Sarasvati would tell you, in the meaning of insisting on the practical yoga, on the, how it fits with the practical things, insisting on the esoteric aspects of yoga, because this is the speciality of Agama. We deal with the esoteric part of yoga, not with the outer shell, which is easily visible, and uh, thus putting things into perspective. How are things today in the 21st century? What survives from all that history of yoga? What do we do now in 2022? How do we do in 2022 things which have been presented 2,000 years ago in a slightly different manner? Why? And all that. So... I decided as a, a sort of a token of reference to our metaphysical workshop where you don't get history and theory. There in the metaphysical workshop you get the understanding of why you do yoga and therefore how to do certain techniques, what is the secret of the evolutionary yoga, how does yoga produce in a human being accelerated evolution. Because ultimately, that's the secret which you discover. The human being evolves. Every breath you take, the Upanishads say, your breath says, Hamsa, 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 and therefore you say a mantra. And you say it 21,600 times per day or whatever it is. Multiply every breath is four seconds and you have 15 breaths per minute, and then see how many minutes are in a day, and find out how many tens of thousands of times you say Hamsa, even without knowing that you say it. And because you say Hamsa, 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 you are evolving. But that evolution is compared with flowing on a river, on a very slow river. You are on Ganga, or on the Nile, or on the Amazon, and you know that one day you'll get to the ocean. But that one day according to Yogananda Paramahamsa, means an average of one million years, which means approximately 2,000, averagely, 2,500 incarnations or lives from now on, which is huge. If you think about just this present life of yours and how many things have happened until today, and that's not even, for most of you who are young here, it's not even half of your lives. No? And then think about a whole lifetime, and that doesn't get you anywhere, because you need to have 2,500 of those. 
And that's the average. For some people, it may be 4,000 of those or some more, you know. And therefore, uh, it's obvious, all of you know, those of you who are uh, aficionados of Agama here, who have been Agama for a while, you know that that's exactly the problem. I can tell you that there are four noble truths, like Buddha said, and the first noble truth is that the essence of life is pain. Like, you live, you suffer. At least for the fact that inevitably you will get old, and when you get old, your teeth are falling off your mouth, and you are walking with a crutch or with a stick, and your dear people around you die one by one, and you start having toothache, and you start having kidney pain, and you can't perform sexually anymore, and the more wrinkled and the more old you are, the more things hurt in your body, until eventually you get a cancer or a heart attack or whatever, which put you down completely, and then you die. No? And even if you are the most optimistic person in the world, this thing which I said, which Buddha saw in a very pessimistic way, I could say, no, realistic, but painful, then all these things are just torturing you. Even when you are a king or a wealthy person, even when you practice social virtues, moral and ethical virtues, getting sick, getting old, getting dead, are not pleasant things of life. And even if the first half of your life was happy and healthy, then still there will come a day when you will uh, go to the other side of pleasure, like in the part related to pain. And that's why, obviously, the line in the whole Vedic thinking, in the whole Indian thinking, because Buddha, in the end, was part of the Indian thinking. He was born on the border between Nepal and India, and his family, his tradition, they were sharing into these Hindu traditions which were happening at that time. So even if Buddha created a new religion, that religion is still part of the Indian pool of philosophy and metaphysics, and that's why what he says is not very far. Ignorant people constantly make a confusion between Hinduism and Buddhism, like, oh, you do yoga, it's something to do with Buddha, or you are a Buddhist or something. You know, it's yes and no, because Buddha, technically speaking, is not a yogi, and nevertheless, his thinking resembles 95% with the thinking of all the yogis of the history. Therefore, the background is the same. And therefore, in this background, this is something which you analyze in the metaphysical workshop and find the solutions found in yoga for it. I'm not intending to teach here Kriya Yoga or uh, other such meditations or methods, because this is a satsang, not a course of yoga. But uh, what I'm trying to say is, um, you hear about the fact that human beings have noticed that life doesn't always contain pleasant aspects, even when you are a good person, and even when you live healthy. I was a vegetarian all my life. I did keto diet. I did uh, trekking through the forest and so on. When you will be 75, you'll have problems with your teeth, whatever you did with all those things. You know, it's like maybe your problems are softer 
No, but still there will be. And if you don't have problems, then your sister and brother will die on you and the world will be agonizing around you and all that. So life is, again, people know that life is not happy. And then why isn't it happy? We are living in a world where the Jewish, Christian and Sufi mystics, they say we are under the umbrella of a great God called Jehovah or the Father in heaven. And this Father in heaven loves us, loves us tremendously, loves us so much that he even sent Jesus to be crucified for our sake here on earth. And he basically wishes for our salvation, that our souls should reach an exalted emancipate. But he loves us, then why the second part of life, at least, if not all the life, is so fucking painful? What sort of love is this? No, it's like whatever you do, whichever way you turn it, where do you see people whose life has been joy and pleasure and fun from when they were born until they died? And when they died, they died blissfully, like they had taken ecstasy mixed with LSD. And then they were like, oh, I'm fucking dying. It's so great. You know, you should all try this one. No, it's like, what are we talking about? No, that life definitely has a problem. Life on this planet definitely has multiple problems. Although some philosophers have seen the bliss of it, the gift of it, the divinity of it, the promise of it, the springboard of it, the perspectives of it. And this is how people in India, India has been one of the most creative cultures in this way, which says something about the way the Indians are. Today, it's not good to classify too much people by their country and race and so on because of this global village, globalist mentality. But uh, in the old days, we would say the DNA of the Indians is definitely different from the DNA of the Vietnamese, you know, not to mention that it's different from the DNA of the Icelanders or whoever else. And thus, uh, definitely in the DNA of India, we find a great creativity towards this, that people were thinking, okay, I have to wait an average of two thousand and five hundred lifetimes a million years for the god's sake to finally reach some nirvana or peace or light or you know to get rid of the four noble truths of buddha you know that life is not pain life is nirvana and thus india among other cultures one of the front runners has created methods. Like the method is to get a diploma in the university. It takes an average of five years for the average student. In medical school, it takes six. In some other universities, it takes four to get a master degree in something. No? And waiting for five years is too much for me. Can I get it done in six months? And the answer is very simple. If you are a freaking genius, yes. Because ultimately, you have to pass 30 exams. There is a curriculum of 30 exams. You can pass them all in one semester if you can assimilate all that thing. There are universities in this world who will not care. They would say, take a passing remark, a passing mark. 
in those 35 exams, and you are an engineer, you are whatever, study, demonstrate to the professors that you know your stuff, then you can get the diploma. You know? And therefore, it is possible to shorten the time of any process. How? If you put in it know-how, and if you put in it willpower and self-discipline. If you push it, you can accelerate it. Well, dear friends here, physically present and online present, this is yoga. Yoga is a method for shortening your education. It's a method for accelerating it. And when you are diligent enough, you can finish it in this lifetime. The average gurus in India got to a point where they said for a powerful student, it can take 12 years. For Buddha, who was a bit mad, and who was a very, very advanced soul, it took six years. Buddha left home when he was 30, and he became enlightened when he was 36. But okay, Buddha was not an average practitioner. He was a bit stronger than an average practitioner. Was he the faster man who ever? No, he was not. In yoga, there are quoted cases where people reached an awakening, a spiritual awakening, even in three years. And in some absolutely flabbergasting cases, it took even less for some people. But those are super exceptions. And that's why the Indian gurus... On the other hand, the guru of Ramakrishna, who was a tough yogi, Totapuri, going around naked like a real renunciate. Uh, you know, at least he was not doing the strongest practices, but he was determined in his heart. It took him 40 years. Anywhere between 3 years to 40 years, it has been heard. No, depending, like some people finish their university in 3 years, and some people finish their university in 40 years. You know, everything is possible depending on what you do. Meanwhile, how much you push on it. And that's why uh, in yoga, there is this thing that in the Vedic, in the Hindu ancient thinking, there is already this thought that there are some people who cannot tolerate waiting too much more. They feel that they are old souls and they feel that they have waited enough. And now if there is a method which can, you press the gas pedal and it can speed up the process, why not? Why should I sit and wait? You are on a raft on the Amazon and you are in the middle of Brazil and somebody tells you, don't worry in two months, you would hit the Atlantic Ocean. But in two months, I will get scorched by the sun. I will get thirsty. I will get hungry. I'm whatever. Maybe a crocodile jumps and eats me on this raft, you know. Isn't there a way to get to the ocean in two hours? Yeah, sure. If you get a motorboat and put it behind your raft, it can drag you with high speed to the ocean. That motorboat is yoga. Yoga was originally, and all the collateral things of yoga, they have been conceived for speeding up your process. But your process is a process of understanding. Like um, 
I thought that uh, life is governed by luck. No? That's a stupidity. There is even a proverb of, in India which says that chance is the teacher of the fools. Only the fools think that things happen by chance. It is by chance that Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, and whatever, Elon Musk, are so rich. They are the lucky bastards. A little bit, if I would have been more lucky, I would have been up there with them. You are a fool if you think like this. It takes something. Maybe not something good, maybe not something which you want, maybe not something which you like, but it takes something to become like Warren Buffett and like Bill Gates. And that's why there is no chance. There is no chance. People who believe in chance, they are uneducated monkeys. And then India says, no, there is something which is called karma. There is some, but okay, karma is already, I met people who did not believe in karma. I met a yogi who lived in Vancouver. A year after he met with me, he said, I thought very well about this and I have given up on all this yoga shit, on Buddhism and so on, because I think that karma is a lie invented by Buddhist priests to keep people under control. Like they all the time say, you do something bad, karma will come and get you. Karma is the boogeyman, you know? And therefore it's just to make people behave exactly like the Christian priests uh, threaten you that you will go to hell. And it's just a way of controlling the masses. This man was an idiot. He was an ignorant monkey if he could believe that the karma is just an invention of the priests to dominate the masses, to control the masses. In the yoga of the disciple of Tibet, the 27 or 28 precepts, lists of precepts for the Tibetan disciples of yoga, one of them says very clearly, which are the first things to do? No, and one of the first things, the first thing for a beginner, says one of those sutras, is to meditate on the law of cause and effect. Like a beginner is advised for six months, one year, six years, whatever it takes, meditate on karma. Constantly try to see the karma in your life, the karma in the lives of your friends, members of your family, people that you know, famous characters in history, Try to meditate on the karma. Because karma is the first teacher. The law of karma is a very... But it's not visible. Some people don't believe in it because you cannot demonstrate it. And some people say, nah, it's a lie. You know, it's a lie invented by priests. Thus, what I'm trying to say here is the fact that when a person evolves... A person understands, like I'm sure that Buddha did not need to learn about the law of karma. Buddha was a prince, his father was a king, he had hired the best teachers in the kingdom, and when Buddha was a teenager and he was studying, they taught him about a million metaphysical things which were known in his time already, and one of them was the karma. So Buddha did not learn about the karma sitting in the jungle and meditating. He knew about it and he knew it was there and how it was acting. And he probably knew a hundred details about the laws of karma. And Buddha 
unlike my acquaintance from Vancouver, he actually believed in the law of karma. So Buddha was an advanced soul. He didn't need to understand that. When you need to understand that, you are a baboon. You know, it's like you have not even gone beyond kindergarten as a human being in your spiritual development. I want to make you understand what evolution means. Because evolution in Kabbalah, it is compared with polishing a diamond, polishing a precious stone until you make it look really exquisite. In the beginning, a ruby or a sapphire or even a diamond looks horrible. It looks like a stone, an interesting stone, but not more. And when you have made the Kohinur out of it, wow, it's dazzling. It's the most expensive thing in the world or near that. And that's why I'm trying to say, a human who evolves is like polishing a diamond. And one thing to polish is, did you understand the law of karma? Which is kindergarten, I'm saying. It's the first thing in Tibetan yoga. No? Yes, if you understood, then you are not in kindergarten. Then you go directly to secondary school or maybe even directly to the university. And that's why we say that Buddha, he was an old soul. He was an evolved soul. No? Buddha describes 1,000 lifetimes as a human being before he got enlightened. No, he remembered, he could see a thousand lifetimes just before he hit nirvana. And thus, what I'm trying to say here is simply that uh, obtaining evolution, accelerating evolution through yoga, it means understanding things. Patanjali, for example, understood that there are ten moral and ethical rules by which you should guide yourself in this life. And the first of them is non-violence. Ahimsa. No? How many people have understood that you should live with Ahimsa? And that is necessary. It's part of the evolution. No? It's like you. if you respect Ahimsa, it means you understood something profoundly. And if you don't respect it, it means again you are in kindergarten. You didn't understand even Ahimsa. That's why going with yoga, of course you do Padahastasana and you do your Tadasana and you start feeling your chakras and then from that there starts coming introspection, understanding. Who am I? How should I live my life? What am I doing on the face of this earth? And all those marvelous questions that you know and in this way, evolution means an understanding. From a certain standpoint, it means knowledge of, of the useful things, knowledge of the real things. Some people would say, Swamiji, what have you got to say about love? Well, knowledge and love are entwined like this. Because somebody who knows eventually gets to know who we are and how we are related to the whole planet and to each other, and to the Creator. And in this way, there appears the understanding of love, compassion, wisdom, and other such things. So, yoga has appeared as a product of those concerns, and there is a long history of yoga which is lost 
somewhere in the midst of time. The first archaeological evidence of the fact that there was a Hindu civilization of India is the famous uh, site, archaeological site from Mohenjo-Daro, which today is in Pakistan, on the Indus Valley. And there they discovered ceramic plates, not many, but just a few of people doing some yoga positions. So that, and they have been dated 5,500 years ago. So 5,500 years ago, I'm sorry, 5,500 years before Christ, I'm, that's 7,500 years ago, the Hindus were already in India. And some of them were practicing yoga. But where does it come from? Because at that time we don't even have evidence of writing. We think scholars until 50 years ago, they believe that writing was invented in Babylon, in the cuneiform writing, in, uh, in, by the Assyrians and whoever, and that would be like 5,000 years old, like 3,000 years before Christ. And then now they discovered some mysterious writings in Europe, in Central Europe, and this, which are more than 7,000 years old, and this demonstrates that there were actually some unknown alphabets and such stuff, really, really, really old, and we don't know shit about these things. What were they writing in those languages, and what? Even the Egyptians claimed that their culture was 12,000, 13,000 years old, and it was going all the way back to Atlantis, that survivors from Atlantis came to Egypt and they gave them the knowledge for building the pyramids and the Sphinx. And today it's almost like conspiracy theory because we don't have evidence of these things. No, but like we know that there has been a proto-history and we don't know much when you read the Greek historians like Herodotus and so on. They speak about Hyperborea, which was even before Atlantis a civilization far up north, that if you go north it gets colder and colder, and then suddenly it becomes warmer again. And there is like an oasis beyond the polar circle or something like this, and those are the Hyperboreans, the northern people which were super tall, blonde, blue eyes, living hundreds of years, like the Egyptian pharaohs or like the prophets from the Bible, and, you know, like we find very convergent stories which we cannot explain. In the Indian culture, we find out that one of the archetypes of the Indian culture, which is Rama, the Hinduism is based on the personality of Rama, which is considered to be the sixth incarnation of Vishnu. That Vishnu incarnated 6,000 years ago or something as Rama, and Rama did a very important thing. Rama with his brother Lakshman and with a few others, they moved the Vedic civilization from somewhere in Europe all the way to today's India. But we know that in Mohenjo-Daro, they were already there. So this thing has happened 7,500 years ago or more. Do we know anything that the migration of Rama is described even through the fact that some of these people went south of the Black Sea through today's Turkey, and some of them went north of the Black Sea 
through Kazakhstan or something like this, and then they rejoined somewhere in Afghanistan, and they passed through the Hindu Kush, through the passes, and they found themselves in the fertile plains of India. Why did they emigrate? What, it's, it's a terrible thing to emigrate 12, 10,000 kilometers in those centuries. Why? What were they searching for? What did they feel that they will find at the end of the rainbow? And who was doing yoga in that caravan? You know, like 100,000 people migrated. Among them, there were already Vedic sages and therefore maybe enlightened beings maybe yogis with powers of clairvoyance and open third eye and others. What do we know about that? Zilch. Zilch. No, there are. There is a place in the borderline between Romania and Hungary, which is called Krishan, which is the name of Krishna. No? Bal Krishan and so on is the child Krishna. There are cities in Eastern Europe. There is a city of 100,000, 150,000 people. So quite a big city which is called Deva. And it doesn't correspond to anything in the European languages. Neither in Slavic languages, nor in Latin, nor in Germanic languages, or any of the languages. from. And these are really, really old. There are rivers. There are villages which are called Guru. There is a mountain top which is called Om of all things, you know, and therefore we know that this is something which started long time ago and it was based on the Sanskrit language and if there was Sanskrit language, there was mystical literature together with it and all these names, Deva, Guru, Om and others, no, they are all names coming from spirituality and therefore we know that there is a pre-Vedic yoga until they got to Mohenjo-Daro and Indus, which was happening even in Europe. They found Viking statues of Viking, of artifacts from the way pre-Christian time, where people were presented as doing uh, Chakrasana, Svastikasana, and a few other things. Old, old artifacts, which had nothing to do 3,000 years ago, in Scandinavia, and still they had such statues which are completely mysterious, like how on earth did they get those ones? What, what does it want to say? And thus, I'm telling you all these things because the very history of yoga is shrouded in a total mystery. We don't know who brought it, if it comes from Hyperborea, if it comes from Atlantis, who invented first methods like Chakrasana or Padmasana or, I don't know, Badrasana or other and other such methods? Who, who conceived of all this? We know they are as old as the oldest things known to humanity and somewhere around 7,000 years ago, these people settled down in India. This is the famous Aryan invasion, the Aryan migration to India, people coming from today's Europe, the Romantic German thinkers, they think that they have identified that they are coming from uh, Schwarzenwald or whatever, it's called the Black Forest, mountains in Bavaria, in the south of Germany. 
other people say other things from the north of the Black Sea, approximately where Ukraine is today, or some other places like that. Um, They say that even this snake island on which the Russians and Ukrainians are fighting bitterly today, uh, our these days, was part of that of those pre-Vedic times, because some, some, there are some mentions in the Greek mythology about that single island. There is only one island in the whole Black Sea, and that's called the White Island. In a Black Sea, you have a White Island, you know, like in the yin and yang symbol and all that. I, again, I'm not going, there are so many mysteries, there is so much which is not explained and which we are not taught in school, Uh, Take a book like Forbidden Archaeology and others and you will discover a lot of things which have no reasonable answers today. And I'm following the history of yoga. Yoga, then some 4,500 BC, after the Mohenjo-Daro time, we start having the first elements of Sanskrit, of texts, and it's the so-called Vedic times. That is the time when the Vedas are formulated. In the Vedas, we already find references to yoga, yogis, rishis, which means wise people, wise men and wise women, sages, people practicing, therefore, something, and they didn't practice it to stay fit, although that's also excellent with yoga, that it can help you to stay fit. They were practicing it to somehow break through. When we study this ancient yoga, now we are not in the time of the mystery. We are in times of which there are, there is a glimpse. And when we read it, we don't understand it. Those times are so weird that we see very clearly anybody who does yoga and reads texts from the Vedas and others, you see very clearly that those people were thinking in a different way. Because what they considered the same thing, by the way, would be if you read ancient Egyptian texts. Egypt has lost its power around 3,000 years ago, at the time of Moses. When Moses came, he made mincemeat of the Egyptian priests and have like his one man, and he just screwed them all because his religion, his connection, was stronger than all the Egyptian priests and um, the pharaohs and so on. And therefore the Egyptian religion 3,000 years ago was severely in decline. It was really, really low already at the time of Moses. And thus, when you study the old Egyptian texts, like there is a book which they call the Egyptian Book of the Dead, translated by Egyptologists in the 19th century. No? And so on. You read it, it's like written in a gibberish language, you know? It's like, it's, what? Like, if you try to understand what does the Egyptian Book of the Dead try to say or do, you need a scholar to explain it to you because scholars for 150 years tried to find out What are these people trying to say? Like, it's not obvious. It's very convoluted, very twisted, very metaphorical, very oblique, and so on. The same is yoga 
of the Vedic times. They speak in ways which are really oblique and indirect. And most of the Vedic things are hymns to Varuna and hymns to Agni and hymns to Aditi and hymns to various Vedic deities in which you can shrug your shoulders and say, okay, let's say I'm not having ill will. Here is a hymn to Agni, the fire god. Okay, I will repeat the hymn to Agni. Oh, Agni, it's like a witchcraft spell. Kri, Kro, Kalto, Gerbo, Kelto, Kri. No, we saw last night a movie with some stupid witchcraft um, uh, spells and so on. And it's like, okay, and you read the hymn to Agni. And in the end, am I supposed to fly one meter above the ground? Or what's happening? For those people, when they did that, the level of their consciousness changed. It's like they took a drug. It was exactly like an artist having an artistic high, watching a painting or some listening to a music and going into a trance. That's why that yoga is very alien to us today. The Vedic times are wonderful because they set the first truth. They spoke clearly about karma. They spoke clearly about purusha, prakriti, like spirit and nature, and all the basic philosophical and metaphysical things, but without too much practical references. Like, therefore, you should stand on your head 10 minutes every day, and that will do you a lot of good. No, no way. Far, far from that. It was everything was like a sort of a mystical poetry and you should immerse yourself in that mystical poetry and get high. You are going to say, and did it work? Yes. Because people had a very different mind. There was not the same level of objectivity, science, entertainment. There were no books, literature, there was no writing. There was like people's mind was almost virgin. People were at a very primitive stage. Not that some spirits in those people were not very high souls. But even when they were very high souls, the education and the activity in the society was simplified to a minimum. And people were not polluted. Today, it's super extreme, you know, with internet and television and books and internet and everything. But in those, they were not polluted, even like in the time of the Roman Empire or of the Greek civilization, where they had theater, drama, Olympic games, mysteries, poetry, hymns, the Iliad, the Odyssey. Nothing like this existed at the Vedic times. And therefore, people were like a blank papyrus. People were like a black, like a blank scroll. Everything which you gave to them, it is said by the yoga texts from the medieval time of India, when they look back, the clairvoyants, the people who could look in Akasha, they say sometimes that those people, if they closed their eyes for 30 minutes and just relaxed, they could have states of cosmic consciousness. It was in today, if you close your eyes, And if you are not brain damaged, if you are brain damaged, even that won't happen. But if you are normal, a normal person, if you close your eyes, after 
30 seconds to 5 minutes, depending on how relaxed you are, your brain starts producing alpha waves. And if you put an EEG machine on your brain, you can see that the alpha waves increase and increase and increase up till a certain point where they become stable. And if you open your eyes, suddenly the alpha waves diminish immediately because beta waves are coming. That's why we do yoga with the eyes closed as much as possible and meditation and other things because the brain is a very simple machinery from this standpoint and you need that. Well, 4,000 years ago, the rules of the game were different. These timelines are very difficult to fathom because in India... I met teachers and some of them well-educated teachers like Swami Gitananda, who was a medical doctor and a social activist, a very present person, a very, like, not phantasmagoric person, you know. And he himself said, oh, there is a temple there in Tiruvannamalai or something where they have a copy of the Yoga Sutra, which is 10,000 years old. I felt like splashing him with a bucket of cold water, but of course he was teaching me yoga, so I was not going to be that disrespectful. But if you look in Wikipedia today, Yoga Sutra is composed around the year 100, 0, 100 before Christ to 100 after Christ. That's the Sanskrit language, because by the language you find out exactly the epoch where a text has been written, conceived. Patanjali, according to modern scholarship, lived 2,000 years ago. How can there be a copy of the Yoga Sutra which is 10,000 years old? 10,000 years old, not even the cuneiform language existed. Or like, we don't know a thing about it. Can the Yoga Sutra come? The Sanskrit language was not invented at that time as far as we know. But maybe we don't know. Because there are cities in Europe which are called Deva which is a Sanskrit word, and many, many others. And therefore, maybe Sanskrit is much, much older than what we think. We don't know. And thus, among these, all these mysteries, we know for a fact that the mind of the people at the Vedic time, 4,000 years ago and more, it was very different. And their spirituality was very different. There came a time where... This started decaying. This is called in the scholarly history of yoga, the Brahmanical yoga, the Brahmanical time, which is about 2,500 years before Christ to 1,500, still very old times. This was the time which uh, irritated Buddha because in this Brahmanical time, all these original Vedic concepts, they have been corrupted very badly. And there was a reaction to them approximately 1,500 years before Christ to 1,000 years before Christ where they tried, there appeared the first Upanishads, the early Upanishads, where they tried, for example, the Brahmanical time, they became very egoistic, exactly as Jesus was accusing the Jewish priests at his time that they were egocentric, manipuristic, manipulative, greedy, and uns- insincere, unsincere, fake, bogus, exactly in the same way Buddha was accusing the Brahmins of India that they had become a joke, that they were not what they were supposed to be, and they were fake and full of ego and impure. And that's why Buddha stepped out of the Hindu tradition 
one of the things which survives in the Buddhist tradition, unfortunately, is that Buddha, for example, was very upset by the way the Brahminical culture was using the word Atma. Atma or Atman, Atma is a feminine name, and it's your soul is a female, and God is a male, and therefore there is an alchemical wedding between your soul and God. Or Atman is a neutral name, neither male nor female. It means the soul as an entity which has no gender, and your soul is the Supreme Consciousness. But in the Brahmanic time, they had corrupted that, and they were using the name Atman for psycho-mental physical things, like your ego, your personality. That's why in Buddhism, many teachers in Hinayana and even in Tibetan Buddhism, they will tell you, no Atma, no self. If you have no Atma, it means you have no spirit. That's completely not true. You tell them, what about the Buddha nature? Don't I have a Buddha nature? Yes. Well, that's what I call Atman. Ah, no, 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 no. Atman was called... Yes. In the Brahminic time, Buddha was right. The name Atman had been corrupted. And that's why the early Upanishads, the Taitiriya Upanishad, the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad and others, they were uh, coming back to the word Atma. And they were defining, wait a second, Atma is not your personality. Atma means the Supreme Consciousness. It's something like this and like that. And that is the post-Vedic yoga, the early Upanishads, which already bring a beam of light. And then we have the pre-classical, the yoga of the epics. That's where the time when Mahabharata and Ramayana have been written is the time of Valmiki and Vedavyasa, and it is also the time when Buddha and Mahavira lived in India around five centuries before Christ, and that's where the plot thickens, because we have a Jain yoga, which supposedly comes from Mahavira, so Mahavira knew about yoga, but he did not want to do it in the Hindu way, and Mahavira insists in his yoga on the concept of karma and purification. The Jainistic yoga is done for getting rid of the karma and for becoming pure. That's why the Jain people don't want to kill even a firefly, even a mosquito. They are afraid of any karmic production. And it is, by the way, of this in modern times, it is the Jains who came with this ridiculous, ridiculous thing from the standpoint of classical yoga, of forbidding garlic and onion. If you go in many Indian ashrams, you will find that they suddenly have a head against onion and garlic. Do the yogic texts really say that? No. Because the yogic texts are related very much with Ayurvedic medicine, and the Ayurvedic medicine praises onion and garlic as being two of the most useful food items that you can have in your health, in your diet, in your life, and in your life. No, But the giants took them out because they are sexual stimulants. And a monk who, tries, who eats too much garlic and onion will wake up in the morning with a hard-on and be horny and then have a lot of difficulties in fighting with this temptation of sex for him. And then they found out, don't eat spices, 
because black pepper and chili and so on, they all irritate your perineum and therefore you are going to be hot and horny in your perineum and we can't have that. So Jainistic yoga brought a very radical influence and the funny thing is that in modern times, after Ramakrishna and so on, especially under the influence of Mahatma Gandhi and people like that, this was returned. And today, I have been in India, and many ashrams were considering it a sin to eat onion and garlic, like unacceptable between their walls, you know. But the Ayurvedic texts are of a completely different opinion, and uh, this is not the main trend of yoga. This is Jainistic yoga, just for you to know that we inherit such mixed things. The Buddhist yoga also insisted Buddha came, and what did he bring? He brought karma, he brought the clarity of the four noble truths, like people, be aware, life is shitty, life contains a lot of suffering, you want to get out of it, I have a method for you. And his method was based on awareness. First time when the awareness was quoted very clearly, that's one of the great merits of the Buddha, that awareness, mindfulness, presence, it's a new definition of consciousness. What does consciousness mean? We take it for granted because we explain it in the yoga courses as we take it for granted. But for example, in the Shiva Sutra, which is written in the 8th century, Vasugupta says very clearly, the first sutra from the Shiva Sutra says, Chaitanya Atma. Chaitanya, the consciousness, is Atma. It's the self. The perception of the self, I am, that's what consciousness is. Because otherwise, what's consciousness? Be conscious. But what does it mean? You know, it's, it needs a definition. That definition, Buddha was the first which compared it with presence, awareness, be here and now. This, uh, all these as mindfulness, as some Thich Nhat Khan calls it mindfulness, but it's a very slippery word. It's not entirely good. And finally, the psychomental study. Because in the moment when you try to look and see who am I and who am I not, then you start seeing I am not my emotions, I am not my mind. Then how do you detach from the emotions and from the mind? Buddhism, especially Hinayana, the early Buddhism, developed a lot of this, like Abhidharma, Kosha, and all sorts of other uh, texts which were developing analysis of people's mind. Today, if even these are so old that if you try to read Abhidharma, Kosha, and so on, you will probably fall asleep after three pages. I did not manage to go through the whole Abhidharma, Kosha, and I'm pretty conversant with the texts of yoga, and I read easily this kind of literature, and it's so dense and it hits a part which I'm not interested at all. It's a sort of a psycho poo at the time of Buddha and later that I'm kind of, oh no, you know, it's like, it's not only Freud and Jung. We have some psycho poo people 2,000 years ago who try to split the hair about what's in the mind and what's in the... Again, for some people it's very interesting. And then... After this powerful thousands of years, then they come with Buddha and Mahavira and the pre-classical the Mahabharata, Ramayana. Then finally we come to what is called classical yoga. 
And in the classical yoga, there appears the first text written purely on yoga. There is mention of yoga in Mahabharata. The gem in the middle of Mahabharata is called Bhagavad Gita. And Bhagavad Gita is one volume out of 12 or 20, whatever, of Mahabharata. And that volume talks about yoga, but in a very generic way. It's a text which is very good for yoga teachers. That's why we play a commentary to the Bhagavad Gita to our teachers in the teacher training program because teaching yoga is a sort of a karma yoga and the best explanation of karma yoga is given in Bhagavad Gita still until today. And in the classical yoga, finally, which is from until the year 500, from around the year 0 or 100 before Christ, that's the glorious time because Patanjali lived in that time and this man Patanjali wrote down the first text of yoga, yoga. Like nothing but yoga. Bhagavad Gita is a text which is in the middle of a war between two clans. And it's about something else. But involuntarily it touches about karma yoga and it touches very profoundly. But Patanjali wrote the Yoga Sutra about 2,000 years ago. Not 10,000 years ago, that's nonsense. Yeah. Again, maybe there was a Yoga Sutra 10,000 years old and it came from Schwarzenwald or whatever, from the Black Forest Mountains in Germany. But we don't know. It's conspiracy theory. Could have been. But we don't know anything about that. And thus, in the classical yoga, there appears for the first time the notion of concentration of the mind, resonance with energies, samyama, Siddhis which result from yoga, paranormal capabilities and perception. That's the time where Patanjali defines yoga like eight stages, like it's a mountain which you climb in eight stages. And all the basic things of yoga, that's why it's called the classical yoga. This classical yoga is like the center of all yoga. And at the same time, the Buddhist yoga evolved into Mahayana the Mahayana Buddhism, especially with Bodhidharma going to China and places like this, even here in the Indochina, and the Mahayana yoga, it's a Buddhist, but there is a yoga to it, it insists more on wisdom and compassion. It's after Jesus, and the echo of the life of Jesus had come to Asia. Remember that even one of the apostles of Jesus, Thomas, He lived in Kerala, in India. He went and lived and died in Kerala, in India. And therefore, people had heard about the message of Jesus. It was spread in Asia. And then the Buddhists heard, and they said, that's a good addition. It somehow seeped into the collective subconscious mind. And that's why they added the Bodhisattva ideal and the compassion ideal, which was not too strong in the early Buddhism. So that's where we find an improved Buddhism. Again, Hinayana Buddhists, they don't think it's improved. They think it's heretical. They don't like each other, the old Buddhists with the Mahayana Buddhists. Until today, their temples are separate. Here in Thailand, the Mahayana Buddhism in the the so-called Chinese temples. There are a couple of them on this island as well. And they are not the same as the normal Thai Buddhist temples. That's Hinayana and the Chinese ones are like uh, rogue or imported. Uh, 
and they are Mahayana Buddhism. That's where you have Kuan Yin, the goddess of compassion, which is the Tara of the Hindu tradition, and all that. And after the year 500, even today when you read the Yoga Sutra, if you have the curiosity, find my satsangs on the Yoga Sutra, and if you can resist, follow one or two of them. I'm saying this because I think I made them great, but it's some of the most dry satsangs which I have done in my life, together with this one and a few others, simply because it's a lot of scholarship. It's a lot of ajna. It's a lot of dry mental thing. When you do like this, your mind does like that. Your mind behaves like this and so on. And many people are like, uh, could we just stand up and dance a little bit? Let's do some Osho meditations, you know. Let's jump a little bit or something because we are getting stiff here listening to this orange guy talking about Patanjali for hours at a stretch. And that's why... Um, even the classical yoga is today very hard to swallow. I'm telling you because I know all the names, or approximately, nobody knows everything, but I know the names of 90% of the big yogis who lived in India and around in Tibet from the year 1850 until today, like in the last 200 years. I approximately know because it's modern times, and we even have pictures of them. We have photos of them. We know, starting with Ramakrishna and Ram Prasad and coming. To, we know what was taught by these yogis. And we know what the modern yoga is in the modern times. None of these yogis, none. Please remember again, neither Ramakrishna nor any one of them did Raja Yoga of Patanjali. Some of them dabbled onto it collaterally, like a sidekick. Nobody practiced Raja Yoga, the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, 100%, and then coming and saying, hey, it worked for me. I am it. I have done it. Not because Patanjali was a bad teacher, and not because classical yoga is bad, but because people have changed in the last 2,000 years, the world has become way more exciting and way more distracting, distracting, distracting our attention. And because of this, more powerful medicine was needed. And that's why the classical yoga of Patanjali, as great as it can be, it's not enough. And the proof is, there is an organization which has been having ups and downs. They are called Brahma Kumaris. Uh, there is, I forgot the name of the founder. There is a Swami Brahmananda or whatever. Brahma Kumaris means children of Brahma. We are the children of God, children of Brahma. And they claim that they practice Raja Yoga. They don't do the full Yoga Sutra far from that. They just do some meditations on the third eye. And that's about it. So it's not pure carb Raja Yoga. But that's why I'm saying... As much respect as I myself have for Patanjali and for Raja Yoga, in the last 200 years nobody has practiced pure Raja Yoga, pure Yoga Sutra, because it doesn't really work easily for people. And that's why new things have come into yoga. And that is, of course, the Tantric age, starting with the year 500 until the year 1300, 
That's the Tantric age. Most of what you know about the Tantric yoga, and by Tantric yoga I don't mean the sexual yoga. The sexual yoga is also included, but the sexual yoga is about 10%, 7%, 6% of all these huge Tantric yoga. Tantric yoga is about chakras, nadis, shakti, prana, energy, mantras, yantras, resonance, and all those. And Tantric yoga, as most of you know, is the backbone of what we do in Agama. This is the modernized yoga, which was revealed to the world about 500 years ago. Part of it came through the Tantric Upanishads. Part of it came through Hatha Yoga, Guru Matsyendra and Guru Goraksha, who are the fathers of Hatha Yoga and Kundalini Yoga, which is practiced today. Part of it came through Vasugupta and others who created the Kashmiri Shaivism and other Tantric doctrines. Part of it came with the Kaula schools of Northeast India, half in India, half in today's Nepal, which were um, focused on the worship of the goddesses, on the meditation on the deities, the deity yoga, as it's called in Tibet. And this was the strong time, this 800 years, from 500 to 1300, it was the time most of the yoga which you will learn here in Agama is yoga which comes from this time, is the post-classical, is after the classical yoga, simply because the classical yoga was too dry and too boring, and people could not grasp it. They needed to work with the body, they needed to do pranayama, they needed to do other things which came powerful there. In Buddhism, this also materialized through the fact that a great Buddhist teacher called Padmasambhava, or affectionately Guru Rinpoche in Tibet, in the year 800 or so, he created Vajrayana, the Tibetan Buddhism. And the Tibetan Buddhism is the third type of Buddhism. After Hinayana and Mahayana, there is Vajrayana, and that is called in some books the Tantric Buddhism of Tibet. In the Tantric Buddhism of Tibet, there appeared the Tantric Yoga of Tibet. When you study every powerful yoga in Tibet, the six yogas of Naropa, including Tumo, Pova, everything which is formidable in Tibetan yoga, and going all the way to the Bardo Todol, to the art of dying, to the yoga of how to die properly, the yoga of the time of death and all that, all of them have appeared in this Tantric age. This Tantric, and again in Tibet it's Vajrayana Buddhism, otherwise it's the Tantric age of Buddhism. Why did it stop? It stopped because in the 1300, in the 13th century, 12th century, 13th century, India was conquered by the Mongols of Genghis Khan, who appointed Islamic rulers. They were very sympathetic to the Central Asian, this Turkmenistan, whatever, all these republics from Central Asia. And uh, therefore, they brought rulers, Islamic rulers. And India, although majority Hindu, it became with Islamic rulers. These Islamic rulers ruled over India for six centuries, half five centuries, 
And in that time, yoga was persecuted because the Islamics are monotheistic people who follow Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and they think that anything, Judaism and Christianity are half tolerable because at least they speak about one God and it's the same God as the Muslims worship. It's the God who talked to, to uh, Muhammad, the prophet. So they are stupid and outdated, but they are okay-ish. But everybody else who is not Jewish or Christian, such as the Buddhists and Hindus, they are directly in the category of heathens who didn't hear about Jehovah, the, the Jewish God, and therefore they have to be reformed completely. Their religion is a no-no. And thus they have been very tough on India, and at that time Tantric Yoga went underground, and because of this it almost disappeared. In the 14th century, it's called by many scholars the age of bhakti. Because the only thing which religious Hindus could do was to do bhakti. To sing kirtans and bhajans and to love God. Most of their festivals and other things, they were dead. There had been a great revival of Vedanta with Shankaracharya in the 7th, 8th century, whatever. It was all suppressed bitterly by the Islamic rulership, and the only thing which could really survive was Bhakti Yoga. And therefore, even Tantric Yoga, it went underground. Thus, in the 14th, 15th century, one of these great yogis, seeing that Tantric Yoga is disappearing, he wrote the Shiva Samhita, and I'm going to comment that for you starting this autumn. And then, when it was almost finished, in the end of the 18th century another great yogi wrote the Geranda Samhita, one text written in the beginning of this Bhakti age, and one of them written in the end of it, as like, there are still yogis, they still do yoga, but it's an underground movement, which is not favored by the ruling class, which was most of it Islamic. This lasted until 1700-1800, when we start the modern age, and the modern age simply starts because India was conquered by the Portuguese, significant parts of it, and then after the Portuguese, it was conquered by the British. And it stayed under British rule for 150 years or 200 years. And then, at that time, this had positive and negative effects on yoga. One of the positive effects was that yoga could be brought to the surface without shame, And this is how Ramprasad, Ramakrishna, Vivekananda and others, they came forth with yoga like, hey, there is an ancient treasure of India called yoga and you should all know about it. It's not dead. It's not dead. Otherwise, in this bhakti age, we have a lot of the Chaitanya mysticism, the Vaishnava. This is where the Hare Krishna people derived their teachings. It's a form of bhakti, medieval Indian bhakti. And also the new religion called Sikhism, the Sikhs, the religion of Guru Nanak, coming around the 15th century. It's also as a rebellion, like Hindus wanted to worship God, but not in the Muslim way. So then they found a hybrid way to have one God like the Muslims, but to worship it in a Hindu way. And that's the Sikh religion a hybrid religion with one foot in Hinduism and one foot in Islam, which became very popular because these gurus, Guru Nanak and the others, 
They were very powerful spiritualists. Sikh yoga continued until today. Today, if you Google Kundalini yoga, probably the first hit which you get is about the 3HO organization founded by a guy called Guru Bhajan. Yeah, Guru Bhajan in America, who was a colleague of uh, Direnda Brahmachari, and they studied with the same uh, Maharshi Kartikeya, the same guru as him, and who was Sikh, and who also learned Kundalini Yoga, and he brought some of it to America and to the West. And thus, this Sikh Yoga continues until the Sikhs keep their religion, and there is a little bit of this Sikh Yoga uh, um, still going on until today. And in the modern age of yoga, we start with Geranda Samhita, which I have commented already. Geranda is the engineer of yoga, is the man who describes the techniques of yoga in categories. Very nice. It's a very good book of yoga, one of the best texts of yoga of modern times. And that's when finally Ramakrishna and the likes of them came up and they said, okay, we still know about yoga. It was underground until 50 or 100 years ago. Now, under the British Empire, the British were very liberal. They, they despised them. They said, yeah, it's a bunch of Hindu, colorful heathens from India, you know, some of these dark Charlies from India. But, uh, you know, they have something interesting called yoga. And they, if they want to show it to us, let them show it to us, you know. We still are British and rule Britannia. I know Great Britain is the most important country in the world. But we are very tolerant to allow the Hindus to show us some of their hocus-pocus called yoga. Like at least they didn't persecute people for doing yoga. And thus, yoga came back to the surface. And first timidly with Ramakrishna, Vivekananda and the likes of them. And eventually... Yoga became known with Yogananda and his lineage, with um, Ramana Maharishi, with Shivananda, with Mananda Mai, with a few other great yogis. Not all of them come to my mind suddenly, of course, Aurobindo in the 1940s and the others. Slowly, slowly, we got approximately 10 gurus of yoga who were the real deal and who fortunately saved yoga for us. Among them, we have to mention especially Swami Shivananda, who being a medical doctor and uh, having a sort of a Virgo mentality, he was very technical. I am a Virgo also and I feel I understand him very well because he felt that first of all the knowledge must be saved. It should be put in books so that people can read it a hundred years later. So even if the teachers die... The knowledge should be there so people should have access to know because it's so frail. And Shivananda did an incredible thing. He gave free lodging and food to all the Babas traveling on the valley of Ganges because Rishikesh is on the Ganges. And people are traveling across the Ganges to go at least to two pilgrimage points in the mountains, which are Badrinath and Kedarnath. So many of these Babas, a lot of the Naga Babas and the others, some of them knowing yoga very well and practicing, they were traveling through Rishikesh. And in Rishikesh they could have bed and free food. And then they made friends with Shivananda. And Shivananda asked them, please don't let the science of yoga get lost, share it with me. And Thousands of Babas who practiced yoga 
they spoke with Shivananda for 20-30 years and they taught him whatever they knew about yoga. And in this way, Swami Shivananda wrote about 200 books on yoga and collateral things and he is one of the saviors of the modern yoga. From him, there come many, many things. Even in Agama, a couple of my teachers studied with Shivananda or with students of Shivananda and therefore they acquired uh, a lot of yoga knowledge was given to the modern world through Shivananda. Although I don't like to say in too much negative things because usually my mouth is foul and when I criticize, I criticize bitterly. Uh, this is also the time in the 50s and 60s when some people doing uh, simplified Hatha Yoga gymnastic hatha yoga they started doing it like oh the british encourage us and we and it's popular and so on let's show them some yoga and the yoga which they had to show was exactly the contortionism of the monkey yoga which is done today it started with a fellow called krishna macharya who had as students people like bks ayengar uh, pratabi joyce and a few others, and these people came up with Ayengar Yoga, Ashtanga Yoga, Power Yoga, Vinyasa Yoga, all this stuff which became popular in the 1970s and 80s, because people being ignorant, they didn't realize that most of these yogas, they were like an empty shell. It's like a coconut that you took the milk out of it, and you still have the coconut, but the milk is not inside. Much of the yoga which came to modern times, no, the International Yoga Federation says yoga is one of the greatest spiritualities of the world because around 300 million people are said to have done yoga in the last 60 years. What you forgot to tell us is that 95% of the people who are said to have done yoga in the last 60 years, they did monkey yoga. And therefore there is no spirituality in that or the spirituality is as much as this. So unfortunately, together with modern times, especially after the 1960s, there came these brands of yoga, which uh, in Agama, we are a little bit bitter about these things, because uh, they confuse people, and they make people believe that yoga is just a physical endeavor, and is just about bending over, and stretching your shoulders or hips or something, and while, uh, you know, it's very good to stretch your shoulders and hips and so on, but you can say, now I do some gymnastics, and then after it, I'm going to do some yoga. Like, if you do gymnastics for the purpose of gymnastics, then call it gymnastics. Don't lie to yourself. And then when you want to do yoga of Patanjali, or the yoga of Matsyendra, or the yoga of Abhinava Gupta, do the yoga of Apinavagupta and then you know at least what is what. You don't uh, confuse yourself and others. Anyway, I have been asked to bring a bit of clarity, like how did yoga come to be what it is today? Remember, that's the trend which exists since 1500 years. Yoga had to be related more to the body. Patanjali, in his Yoga Sutra, he does not, he says that people can sit in postures, in bodily postures, but he does not teach even one of them. None. Therefore, the yoga had to be related to the body, to the energy, to the chakras, to the channels, 
And that is what Tantric Yoga started doing 1500 years ago. And that's why the modern yoga which works is of this kind. Even the legendary Kriya Yoga of Paramahamsa Yogananda, whom he claimed that this was the creme de la creme, the best of the best and so on, is actually a form of tantric yoga. When you breathe through your third eye and go to Muladhara and you go from Muladhara back to the third eye and you say Hamsa, Hamsa, because that's what the first Kriya, uh, roughly speaking, is. We teach that in the metaphysical workshop very clearly in all the details and you see that the pure Kriya yoga is much more complex than that. Then, basically, this is exactly as it would be taught in Agama. It's very little difference between this and the prana uchara, which we teach to our students in the very first level of yoga, as the most simple, together with music meditation, you have prana uchara, like the two methods to use to do a successful meditation and to obtain results quickly. People who do music meditation, people who do prana uchara, if they do it for three weeks, They can go to a medical laboratory and put electrodes on their skin and measure their brain waves and see that their brain waves change radically while they do a simple meditation which they learn in the level one of yoga. And so you don't have to be Buddha six years in the forest to be able to already influence powerfully things there. So these are the modern trends of yoga. This is where the yoga comes from. It's a long agitated history. We don't know from where it starts. Its roots are lost in the mist of time. But we know that people invented yoga because they wanted to accelerate their personal development, their spiritual development. They wanted to become more compassionate, less violent, more wise, more pure, to deal with the karma and the karmic challenges and a hundred other things which I mentioned to discover love, to discover the real love, the authentic love. And in this way, the story of yoga is a story of how this revelation came to us. That's why one of the real beautiful things is that yoga got updated periodically. And that's why it's modern. Many things which you read in the Jewish religion, which you read in the Christian religion, and even in the Islamic religion, they have this perfume that they are more than a thousand years old and they have never been updated. Like, what does it mean for it? There are, I've heard when I lived in Scandinavia that there were Islamic people living in Sweden or whatever. When they made kaka, they did it on a newspaper. Because the prophet in the Quran wrote that thou shall not shit in the water. Because of course in Saudi Arabia, the water is a life-giving commodity. And if there is an oasis of water on every 500 kilometers, if somebody shits in it, then the others get dysentery. Or they, anyhow, drinking that water becomes a monstrosity, you know. And therefore, you are not supposed to shit in the water because the water sources are very scarce and very precious. But Sweden is nicknamed the country of 100,000 lakes. No, They definitely don't have a problem with the water 
and the water in your toilet, the water one which you flush, goes through a purification system and it has nothing to do with the drinking water of other people. And therefore, an Islamic thinker should have come and said what the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said 14, 16 centuries ago in Saudi Arabia, does not apply literally to Sweden in the 20th century, simply because of this and because of that. And therefore that, but to believe that the essence of the religion is not to shit in the water and to live in the 21st century and to shit on a piece of newspaper, you know, in the middle of a civilized in Stockholm, you know, and so on. It's like, that's why uh, everything needs an update because the conditions are changing constantly and we have to see what is what. Yoga has had this chance. The great Ramakrishna in the 19th century was nicknamed by Romain Roland, the French writer who wrote a good biography of him. He was called the prince of the yogis, a prince among the yogis. Well, this prince of the yogis, Ramakrishna, for example, he has a huge value in bringing up the modern yoga. Another great modern yogi who studied in Oxford or Cambridge, Sri Aurobindo, and he was top of the class, super intelligent, super educated man. No, he also wrote volumes on yoga and he gave the modern interpretation with psychology, with the subconscious, the superconscious, the supraconscious mental, the supramental and everything. And in this way, Every time, every 100 years, 200 years, yoga is modernized. Even the yoga which you study today, how much did we know about electromagnetism, energy, vibrations 200 years ago? Not much. But now with quantum mechanics and the modern physics, we know. And that's why when Swami Shivananda, when Swami Satyananda and others, they explained yoga... They can explain it in the terms of modern physics and explain this is an energy which comes from the sun and to get it you need to tune in and therefore you do trikonasana or you do this and you get energy directly absorbing from the sun, from the moon, from the stars, from the earth, from the water element, from the fire element, from this, from that and the yoga which you learn here in Agama is so clear so crystal clear, so beautiful, so clearly explained, that's not my merit. My merit is that I got this yoga from my teachers and I understood it. And of course, I practiced it because I was very curious to see if it works and how it works and where it goes and what it gives. And that's why uh, modern yoga is the result of an updating. Modern yoga is very up-to-date and that's one of the things for which I love it because it's rational and it's not mixed in too many dogmas. There are still people when we teach yoga, they say, come on, man, this sounds like my grandmother believed in these things. In yoga, we try not to believe in the things. Remember, last thing which I want to touch, that nowadays we talk about energy, 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 Please be aware, I'm telling it to you, I who teach you about energy, 
either directly or indirectly through the teachers who teach here in Agama. There is no scientifically concept of life force or energy accepted. Modern physics and modern medicine believe that this is a fake science. It's pseudoscience. If you go on Wikipedia and look in pseudoscience, you will find there homeopathy, acupuncture, everything. Simply because they say that if somebody could demonstrate clearly the existence of prana, they would take the Nobel Prize for physics automatically. Automatically. It would be one of the greatest discoveries from the theory of relativity until today. From quantum mechanics until today, there hasn't been something as relevant as that. But the funny thing is that in the last 100 years, nobody has been able to demonstrate that. We work every day in it with yoga. The yogis feel it. They listen to the music and they feel it. They speak to each other. I spoke with people doing parapsychology and they came to a group of yoga and they said, man, like any scientist would go berserk if they would come to one of your classes because you speak on a daily language about things which science is completely flabbergasted about and people are still doubting if they exist or not. And you do it like you scratch your ear like this. For you, it's banal things, which everybody in a yoga class does all the time. No? And people feel it, and they can do things with it. And that's why uh, yoga is really out there. It's wonderful in this way, and updated, and as much as we can, but still it remains an esoteric science. If people are not ready to accept acupuncture and homeopathy and prana, then it means that yoga, this kind of yoga, is definitely for a few chosen people who have the good karma to learn about these things and who have the level of intelligence to use. They are true. We are teaching you constantly how to do experiments, so that you can experiment, not believe blindly. Prana, you don't have to believe in prana, but you have to do experiments about prana. And nevertheless, yoga has been a mystery 5,000 years ago, as it is today. And um, you are part of this amazing tradition which comes through the centuries. I hope it has brought a bit of clarity to the people who... Um, asked these questions. I hope it has inspired you to one day do our metaphysical workshop and study a bit of the metaphysics of yoga because it's absolutely fascinating. You will see there how the whole thing is aggregated together. And uh, I hope to see you in the comments on the Shiva Samhita in the autumn where I will try to explain to people one of our root texts of the tradition. I think it's enough for tonight. I acknowledge this has been a bit of a technical, scholarly, and in my opinion, dry uh, workshop. Uh, I'm sorry, satsang, because I haven't been going too much in your resources of aspiration, mind, energy, and all the rest. But I hope, in all in all, it's a useful knowledge, which will inspire you to dig more into yoga. Thank you all for joining tonight.